0: Welcome to the Art of Outreach. I am Mike Mitchell, Director of Community Outreach for the Tennessee Art Education Association. I'm also the Art Director for Mount Pleasant Schools here in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee really excited about our guest today, Lauren Klein, founder of Aesthetic Autonomy Art Hair Futures. Lauren, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: So I think it's uh, really interesting. You, I talked to someone yesterday and said, have you had any accidental Zoom calls? And, <laughs> um, and Lauren and I met through her um seeing the art of outreach podcast and being interested and then just an asynchronous messaging where i messaged someone else she messaged back and then i unintentionally set up a zoom with her thinking she was someone else and then we ended up talking for like an hour and a half on a friday yep. because i got so fascinated with um what you are up to with your practice um and so um Also, the the biggest clue to that was Lauren was not in Cookville, Tennessee, where Mary Clages was supposed to be. She was in Mexico City. And that was my clue to realize that something had gone awry. And then we ended up figuring it out. And she was really gracious and said, well, let's just talk. And so we started talking about hair and art and futures and all of these different things. And I just got really excited. And then she's agreed to be on the podcast um, to talk about her practice and the things that she does. And we will get into all of that. Um, But talk a little bit first, Lauren, about why be an educator? Why be an arts educator or a teacher when you could spend your time and talents in lots of other places in the world?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think that it's actually one of the most important things. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners feel the same way. But the idea of education to me doesn't necessarily mean even working in a school or working with students. To me, education is about um, bringing and exposing new ideas, new ways of thinking to everyone, and particularly maybe even people who are not seeking it out. Um, and, And the reason for that is because, you know, we're all hopefully focused on evolving, and that's really important to me. Is the idea of social wellness and and this kind of real history informed positive evolution, which happens through education.
0: So um, you talked about in that your answer there. You said you know how do you reach people who are not seekers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I, and I think that that's that's really. Something that educators have um, have always kind of wrestled with, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it's not, and and people who aren't seekers doesn't mean that they're not that they're necessarily opposed to knowledge. And then sometimes people who are not seekers are actually opposed to that. Absolutely. And so I think that that's really an interesting um, thing to um, really dive into for all of us who are educators. Is this um, you know, I'm sure it's other places growing up in the south of the United States, I always heard the term, you know, you're preaching to the choir, you know, and that is, um, and the choir is great, right? Like you want them, you want to talk to them, like here's people who are there, they're all ears and they're ready to talk in any, any given classroom, there's a choir, in any given social situation, there's a choir, and it isn't to say that those people aren't important. They're there, they're ready to learn. And um, but, I, but I do understand that what you're saying for this, to get to that social wellness, to get to that where everyone's connected is like, I love that idea of the challenge you've given yourself is to say, I'm looking for that spot of like how to reach those people who are not seeking what I'm trying to give them. Not mm-hmm. imposing on them, not saying mm-hmm. you have to believe like I believe, but how do you connect to them and give them um, some of the same um, uh, tools and strategies and techniques that I think I understand kind of in our pre-interview and also just looking into what you're up, what you're uh, kind of into, you wanna give them those tools to investigate their own lives. Um, yeah. So as someone who is uh, an educator, someone who in even the practices that some people would not necessarily think that you do that are necessarily um, like traditional teaching, there always seems to be kind of an underlying pedagogy of what you just talked about. It's like encouraging them. Why is it important then for you to have a practice of of doing that yourself? Mm -hmm. Right, like why have a studio practice um, as opposed to just moving towards, uh, well, I'm gonna gonna write educational blogs, I'm gonna write these things, I'm gonna do these things. how is how is how how is you having that kind of artistic or creative practice really important to you?
1: Yeah. Well, I think first, I'll start by just explaining a little bit about what aesthetic autonomy is. So you can see aesthetic autonomy is like an umbrella under which there are several practices that I have. Um, and so art, hair, futures, those really are <laughs> the... channels that I'm using um, as for modes of education. Um, So one of my practices is that I have this aesthetic autonomy salon, right? So this is incorporating all of those things, art, hair, and features. And um, what happens in that salon space is you know this is kind of just diving right in like okay here here I am I'm, I am an educator I am affiliated with a, a school I'm a coordinator of the art and design features program at an online high school but that's kind of recent before that I've been developing this other practice and which is to kind of looking at the landscape um and seeing what's What's going on out there, right? So I have a history as a hairstylist. I, before that, I was a sculptor and worked with audio, and I still am. Um, but taking the opportunity to work at the level that people are. So, for example, when I look at, you know, the market of salon, I see that pretty much every salon that I've encountered has the same aspects. There's they're selling you products they you know, you're sitting in someone's chair, it's very often a disempowering experience. Um, you're speaking about things that, you know, may or may not be impactful to you. But I will say this through my experience, every person, when I invite them, to tell me something about their first memory of their hair, it all starts with, well, when I was a little girl, usually, when I was a little girl, this happened. And that's, I mentioned that to say that there is a long um, impact. (laughs) There's like a long history and story of impact around how we feel about ourselves based on the relationship we have with our hair. And then you look out, as I was saying, looking out into the market and realizing, like, okay, this is just the same stuff over and over and over. Even some salons are specialized in curls and some are this, but it's usually the same language. It's about anti frizz or, you know, covering your grays or these kinds of things. Well, that all influences and upholds this actually several belief systems, right? One has to do with it being about beauty, about this separating yourself from your nature, which is a huge part of this uh, education I'm doing is just looking at that. How are we being separated from our very nature, our natural self, right? Um, And so within the salon industry, separating ourselves from our nature, um, assuming that there are ways to be or not to be, ideas about being on trend or not on trend, um, fashion and all these other implications, Racialization right One thing that I am I'm a natural texture advocate for all textures to be worn naturally, which is a, is a kind of a subtle um, thing but it's really strong when you break it open, which is that um, I'm working to help all people understand and heal their relationship with their own nature, natural texture. And then what it means and what are the implications if that's not happening, if you're going into a salon and they're straightening your hair or changing it, why is that? And that has to do with this kind of spectrum of classification that we have all been taught around race and identity.
0: You have two minute there might be one in that room over there, but I don't think we have one that's working. Lauren, I'm sorry.
1: It's all good. Um, It's kind of loud over here too.
0: Yeah, we just, there's somebody that popped in to drop something off here. So um, I love the, when you talked about that power structure, it only just now hit me that the, the salons that I went to when I was a kid were set up just like my doctor's office and just like my dentist. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I was in a waiting room. I had to make an appointment no matter how long I made the appointment in advance, no matter how, when my mom, you always had to sit in the waiting room for a mm-hmm. little bit as if mm-hmm. to just be like, we, we, we are, we can get to you, but we'll get to you when we can get to you. And I just mm-hmm. think that's, even though you're like, I'm on time, I'm supposed to be here at 10 like um, you still have to wait and and never thought about the idea that we go to the dentist um when our teeth hurt we go to the dentist when we need them to get clean because they're dirty we go to the doctor when we aren't feeling well and we go to the hair salon when our and, and and how that setting up the same structure makes it seem like my hair is broken and i have to go get it fixed
1: yeah totally
0: right my hair is sick and it right. needs to be well. And right. so and for the way for it to be well is what you just talked about. Well, one way it's sick, like, well, what's wrong with your hair? You know, if you follow that line of thinking, well, it's out of style. So that's one way okay. it could be sick. What's wrong with your hair? Well, it's too unruly, right? Exactly. What's wrong with your hair? Well, I'm a boy living in the South in 1980, like it's too long, and I don't want to look like a girl. So there's gender right. issue in relationship to how I've perceived my hair and all of that could be corrected for you know six dollars at a chain that right. is looking and going like here are the three you know I remember looking at the little pictures and going like here's how you could get your hair cut right and they would just zip 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 and they would pay the thing and you know me and my three brothers were out in you know 20 minutes and then we'd run right. up to, to the next place and get to go into the comic book shop. And so right. it's really interesting how that, I'd never thought about that way of like the power structure and how the power structure fits the idea of the medical industry and that it's loosely based off or maybe not loosely, but very specifically based off that idea.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And, and so, you know, within the practice, that is one of my studio practices. So I work with clients and the idea is that as a, it's a, the, What I'm really working to do is is this idea of service design and transition design. Transition design has to do with um, creating an environment or facilitating the personal transition from one set of beliefs or understanding into another, right? That's how I see that. Service design has to do with just that. How are your... Users is the word that's often used in that in that realm. How are the users of your service? You know being impacted by your service or you know, it's it's kind of like designing a system any closed system, right? Which then of course isn't really closed. So service design is really exciting to me because it has to do with um, any offering that we have as a creator as an educator as an entrepreneur um in any any part of society really is being the implication is like if we really look at the the way the the experience moves and the impact on the person having the experience, we can be really intentional and gear it towards anything we want. So I just want to reiterate everything I'm talking about here. When I'm talking about designing for a thing or an outcome or a positive or preferred future, I'm really talking about social wellness. And to me, what that means, it has to do with, uh, you know, social justice and equity and opening up minds to experience things that we have no clue what the possibilities are. As as cultures as as we's right there is no one we there are only several we's how many groups can we we we's (laughs) and really decentering decentering those who are now centered right so there's definitely so much inequity in the way that we are all living and have been living and looking at our evolution it's now it's time to absolutely deconstruct that because evolution has been impacted by that the personal personal evolution and cultural evolutions right Mm -hmm. so within that studio practice that is something that i offer aesthetic autonomy salon is something i offer i didn't mention that within that environment i also use sound to create a vibrational environment and there's also know, research around, utilizing that research around sound as a physical impact, as a physical force, um, and vibration as a physical impact and kind of uh, therapeutic, possibly therapeutic um, experience for the body, right? So it's assuming, it's really, and this is where the, this is, I call this artistic research, it's, Making the assumption and working from the position of every being is a vibrational environment. We have our internal vibrational environment and state, and that has to do with our belief systems, it has to do with the way we think, it has to do with what we're experiencing around us. And then our, you know, each each room we're in is, is its own vibrational environment, Each relationship has its own vibrational environment. So through Aesthetic Autonomy Salon, I'm working with people within that space, really intentional vibrational environment using a spatialized sound installation that's generative. I'm using sensors on the body to just monitor the biodata and helping people to just have the sensation of being embodied and aware of where they are in the moment, right? and to offer that as a service or as part of the service, to me is, an edu- is educational, it's outreach, it's, uh, it's teaching about features and the potential of all services.
0: I'm having one of those moments right now, an intentional mindful moment because I'm hearing you talk about sound, I'm hearing you talk about that each person is its own vibrational environment, and there is a work truck that has a metal bed and it is being banged on <laughs> and I have to remember my, my inner uh, kind of like deep listening practice that I get from going to the Big Ears Festival and understand mm-hmm. that there's a beauty and a um, just a wonderful coincidence. And the second you started talking about sound and vibration that I started hearing them. And instead of thinking about them as that they are ruining the podcast, I'm going to draw attention because I'm not sure how much the microphone is picking those up. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you said there that I think is or one of the one of the you know that really your overarching theme this idea about social wellness is really really cool because right now in most conversations that are being talked about with remote learning and traditional schools going back to a remote environment, you know one of the big things that's being discussed is that Inside of COVID-19, I should say, my understanding of the conversations inside of the, like, American educational system. So I mm-hmm. want to be real clear about that. I've been on a lot of calls and I'm part of a couple groups and um, people are thinking about it. And so the idea of, like, um, where we're going back to school in Nashville, where my son goes to school and then here in Murray County, you know, one of the big things that people are talking about is, you know, that social emotional learning is going to need to be put at the forefront. It is going to need to be like kids have experienced trauma due to COVID 19 because they ended their school year. Um, we don't know what experiences they've had um, in environments that we are already uncomfortable with in relationship to kids living in poverty and affected by poverty on a consistent basis. And so um, I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, in you're talking about no longer. Uh, not just not that we are but you're saying hey the symptoms are not what we need to be talking about we need to be talking about the overarching social wellness yes. Uh, yes. of places and so how does how does how do how does in your you know your practice but also like your outreach and you talked about it in you said you were wanted to talk about like new harmonic session how does how does futures and, and, and empowering people to think about futures and futures literacy how is that part of that for you in in, in getting to that social wellness
1: yeah well one thing that just came up for me as you're speaking about you know yeah everybody is talking about like what are the next steps and we're kind of assuming that kids have gone through trauma and all these things. And that may be true, but also the first thing that comes up for me is like, oh, let's ask the kids.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Because we don't know, because we're 40 or something. And, you know, we don't know what it's like.
0: <laughs> sure. And I, and I think that's a I love that, that initial, like just that immediate is like that immediate pushback is that, some kids maybe actually loved being home, right? And, and the trauma was us. The trauma was having to go to school. And so, um, and, and I, think what, I think what I mean is, and in, in, in especially in talking with friends of mine who are social workers, who are in the, you know, they're talking about the specific kids that they know who were already living in you know, very specific traumatic situations that they right. are making assumptions that those have been heightened because of of what's going on. But I also, but I do love what you're saying is like on this larger scale of those kids that we that aren't in our immediate um, kind of worry zone, where because we, we've had prior experience, you're saying like, hey, let's talk about like and 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 what should we be talking about in relationship to social emotional learning with these kids? Like maybe that question is tell me why you had so much fun and how school could now look like that more, even though you now, quote, have to be back at school. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so I love that idea. So, um, but kind of getting back to like your idea of like futures literacy, like mm-hmm. what does that look like in relationship to, or what does that sound like for you um, to, to, to talk to people about thinking about futures literacy? I know you said that designers, you feel like that they've kind of, had this uh, kind of awareness of futures literacy, um, but you want to kind of like broaden that to like everybody. Like,
1: yeah. Oh, well, I will say that I think um, it's really hard to escape language, you know? Um, so I think that, in fact, I know, and I apologize for not being more educated on this myself, but I know that in various cultures, on various continents, this is just part of the way of thinking. It has to do with exactly what I would call futures thinking is. It's not called that, (laughs) right? So I just wanna say that first. And then I want to just say that I'm a huge advocate for teaching new ways of thinking in schools from a very young age. And futures literacy is one way of doing that. So there are, As far as I know, there's only one high school that's really focusing on futures literacy, and that's the high school that I, you know, kind of put forth this initiative. And we're a startup. We're at the very beginning, but it's a very exciting project, Eclipse Academy. Um, So futures literacy has to do with um, teaching methods and uh, critical thinking skills and, of opening up practices to that that designers are using that you know people in governance are using um who are working with futures that really help to make wise decisions and what makes the decisions wise is that it's not looking at just the impact for yourself for a personal gain but it's really looking at the impact across your 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 family and also socially, right? So um, the idea, as I as I mentioned when we were speaking earlier, is it's usually designers who are exposed to the idea of futures, right? But um, most designers will say like, "Oh, we need, we do need futures for all." Okay, how do we do that? Or another thing could be, ah, how can we use futures thinking or futures design or speculative design or how can we iterate on this idea so that it's more adoptable for people, you know, kind of like the public. And what I'm interested in is um, making sure that the public is not only being the recipient or receptive to these ideas, but being able to self-generate, you know. So I, know I am very much looking forward to implementing this within the school that I'm affiliated with Eclipse. But also, um, you know, it's part of how I work with clients. It's part of how I work within the salon. And then I have an, an, uh, like a virtual salon space as well, right? So within this virtual salon space, there's a few things happening. One of the things that has been incredible is um the session called the New Harmonic Session. So this is like a, a series of sessions where it just I there's a couple things that happen. One is that I am actually teaching about or speaking about this this perspective, this ideology, and kind of moving through this this pedagogical arc with the person. but in the, guy, in the framework of um, them speaking about their experience with their own hair, right? So the idea is to start to shift the mindset. Now, the way that I see, the reason I see this is important is because it starts with the way you feel about your hair. We go back into history. We're talking about your mom, your relationship with your mother or father they're imagining kind of speculating about what's, what was happening around them in those moments, how they developed their relationship with their bodies and themselves and their personal aesthetic, which is often equalizes to equals identity and, and how that was learned from their parents. So we're kind of stretching back into this personal history and ancestral history and then understanding how that impacts us today based and then as well, bringing into the equation, what are your experiences? What are your experiences at work? What are your experiences with your family? What are your experiences walking down the street with your own identity? How has your identity been formed? And that is unfolding through looking at language and and working through that process. And then, you know, as well, it's the idea of projecting into the future. So working with clients with children who are interested in supporting their children to have really healthy relationships with their own identity. See, the thing that I think is really important to say as well is that identity is often relational. So I think that people are like, well, I'm this, I'm not that, (laughs) right? Well, that's how domination happens and that's how social injustices happen and that's how racism happens. Uh, and ha- has become a structure in the U.S. and around the world. So, how can we break down that relational identity, instead of it being "I'm not that, I am this," and have it be more about generative identity? How, how, who are we based on intentional awareness and choices? Who are we based on this belief system that is generated from our personal? experience and decisions that we make rather than what we have inherited or learned. Right? So I believe that is part of what futures literacy is as well. You know, to be literate in this idea of thinking and, and futures is like just a word that describes it, right? Um, I mean there's also a real structure there as well. <laughs> but um, so the new harmonic sessions are really important and powerful as part of my practice within futures because the idea is you know when you start to and then we and within the within these sessions we go through very practical tangible physical ways to start to shift yourself your thinking right um and why is that important because it does change the way you see everything. It changes the way you see advertisements. It changes the language you use when you're talking about somebody else. Maybe it changes the way that you make your your impact on your personal impact on somebody else in a in a meeting at work. Um, So the idea is that it really does of course start with healing the relationship with yourself, being intentional, becoming aware of things that you had no idea, and then that spreads out into the way that you are and the way that you interact in the world. Because one thing I will add, sorry, is that, you know, <clears throat> there's this idea of the our, the way we believe and the way we see is it creates our environment, but also, it's not just us, right? It's other people's beliefs create our environment, which is another way that we are impacting each other. And historically, it's been really negative ways, right? There's, there's good and bad, but we can't forget to look at all the negative ways and all the shadows. So um, evolving our own belief systems makes an impact on the whole sphere around us.
0: Um, dive in a little bit more about that idea of our belief system being an environment. It's one thing that I really loved about, uh, one of your Instagram posts, recent Instagram posts, as you talked about that, and it made me think about in our conversation about how we do environmental impact studies, right? And if my own belief system is an environment, then it means that I can study that environment and then I can make decisions based off of that. So, things that yeah. are harmful that are happening, I can identify those and then remove those from it. And that might be my belief system is rubbing up against someone else's belief system and I'm letting that come towards me too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also could mean that my belief system that I have is rubbing off on my son in a way that's actually not healthy for him. And so, I'm really excited mm-hmm. about this information and how. I just think that that idea of talking about your belief system as an environment is a really cool concept. Can you kind of just dive into that just a little bit more? Like, is that your idea? Is that a, a big idea that exists in the world? Is that?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you how I came to that uh-huh. idea. I I follow an account on Instagram called Design Exology Network, um, and this person. Who I have never met, but um, put out a call for different different concepts, um, and I said, "Hey, I'm I'm interested in participating." And so he sent a a structure that he would like to present any new ideas in, and there were three three prompts or rather four, it's, you can take any of your ideas um, and then put them into the structure of a character, a system, or and a space, and then just write how this relates to design. So as I was thinking about all of this, um, when I, I was, you know, first I thought with the word system, you know, and it took me a few iterations here, I think I have several pages of notes several versions of this. Um, the first one was that the system was your belief system. And then I realized, oh no, actually it just, that's just what, how it came to me. I was like, no, that's actually the space because the belief system creates your environment. It creates your space, right? So that, that's how I started thinking about it in that way. And then as I think about it more and more, it's just makes so much sense. Right? So it was a prompt for character, system, and space. And um, so I think that, to me, I, I use that phrase a lot. I've been talking about it a lot for years, decades. What you know, the way we think about things, the way we believe. And, and I think it probably started actually from reading Emile Durkheim and, you know, a sociologist and his, um, book, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, which has to do with breaking down that, like, how our beliefs impact our, our reality and create our reality, right? um and that has stuck with me and been an incredibly influential thought and idea for me for my whole practice as an artist for the last 20 years um so i mean it's very literal you know i think the the thing that i when i look at what's happening today in the states and you look at how the whole the whole us was founded um by these people who arrived with certain ideas, you know, and that's just how people arrive with ideas and beliefs about who they are and what they have rights to and that they claim it all because that's what they believe. (laughs) And, um, and it gets iterated again and again by our, our systems of, um, you know, the way that we build businesses. My dream is that, um, you know, in the future, like the future of the corporation is that the corporation actually takes on responsibility as an educational system <laughs> because they're the top, corporations are the, the biggest educators on this planet, even more than governments. We're being taught by corporations in every second of our lives. Everything we own, everything we look at, everything we hear, you know. Um, so,
0: Dr. Adolph Brown. The third is a, is a really interesting character. Um, Not character. He's a human. He's an interesting, um, like voice in my head. I I've gotten to see him speak a few times. Um, he's the youngest person in the U S to ever have gotten his doctorate. He got his doctorate when he was 24. Um, he is black. He grew up in uh, Chicago in a neighborhood that he identifies as being um, uh, really um, underserved in every possible way, and as a result, the the things that happened in that neighborhood were, um, for him as a kid, were really difficult, um, and he got his doctorate when he was 24 and he's an educator and he has kids now as a, as a, as he's gotten older and he, but he draws a lot upon, um, things that his grandfather would say to him who, um, you know, did not have the same, does not have the same academic background as him, but he's like, he's the smartest dude I've ever met. He's probably the smartest guy I'll ever meet. And his grandfather just said, look, more is caught than taught. Right. Like mm-hmm. what you'd said about corporations, like mm-hmm. we are learning from them all the time. And it's very intentional, right? Like they uh, are absolutely how to engage with them. Um, we were at, uh, we were, I was at a store with my mom and I said, do you hear that? And it was the people who were checking people out and the, the beep was so loud. It was, beep. it was like really loud. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, do you not hear that beeping? And she was like, oh, oh, I do now. And she was like, why is that that way? And I was like, it's the sound of people spending money, right? Yeah. Like it is, you walk in and the point is like built Bye.
1: in. <laughs>
0: you want to hear those beeps. Like I can make the beep happen. I'm supposed to make the beep happen. And so you, you know, it's just one of those really subtle messages. There's no reason that those things need to be turned up that loud." Well exactly like the person who's utilizing it doesn't need it to be that loud to where i can hear it eight rows over but it's turned up that loud so i can hear the sound of money being spent
1: it's so harmful it's so harmful and you know physi- just, physically even harmful like as you say the person within that close proximity doing that all day long does not need to be
0: exposed <laughs> right right oh yeah and 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 just the the yeah that we're we're there for an hour they're there for nine a day yeah. um, constantly hearing that I used to work at a as a kid I worked at a video arcade and I still sing this one song from one of the video games that was the loudest one
1: wow. and
0: it and I would it would it would happen in my sleep it was mind-numbing like how yeah. that game it just was like stop it and I could still hear if I hear that it's little. There. If I hear what the right note I can go back to this this game and so I just think that's how it's interesting how I think I hear what you're saying is like part of that reimagining our future is is investigating everything around this right like you said that futures and futures literacy starts with histories but specifically like stories you mm-hmm. know this idea and I think that sometimes I know not sometimes. I know that all the time, stories get thought about differently than history. right? And so my granny, who you know lived in very rural Tennessee, her stories about Sputnik, and as when she was a little girl, and how she was terrified of Sputnik, like that's not considered history. Mhm. Right. Because history is has to fit into these ideas of like how his, how histories are written, which is in this academic way. And I'm really fascinated with and so thankful for things like StoryCorps and places that are starting to say, actually, stories are the history. Right. Like the, the histories are under like under suspicion as well. Right. So why can I not understand my grandmother's great grandmother's stories as. My history too yeah
1: don 't trust history <laughs> I mean here's another aspect is that you know what are data points what are what are the impact uh, data and case studies that corporations it's they're looking at their users and they're asking them they're for a story mm. you know yeah. this is this is another aspect where it's like we need to Close the gap between our whole natural self (laughs) as an embodied being, which has never been the goal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And we need to close the gap between that being and all the information that we're taking on that is only designed, you know, we that needs to be removed rather, you know, because that information is not designed to bring you closer to yourself. And I'm fascinated, what would happen if we were all, the goal was to become closer to our natural selves, our natural beings, to get in touch, to not deny our emotions, to not be scared of emotion, to not think that, We have to live up to an expectation of positivity and shininess and being great. I'm good all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like those don't make you a good person. This this whole like good vibes only thing. No, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's a huge denial. And I think part of education and outreach is just simply having the space to exist in our natural state, right? And that could be any, anything, any mix of emotions. And just instead of demonizing or you know, making it so bad and negative, especially with kids, you know, that that's a huge re-education. That's a huge unlearn. You know, as as we were saying a few minutes ago, like, oh, what would it be like to just ask the kids, like, what's this been like for you? What do you think a pandemic is? What do you think quarantine is? Can you tell me? Like I'm not really clear (laughs) actually either or whatever, you know, just opening up the the channel for like a natural true expression without it having to be something that's um, setting a student or setting a person up to tell a story that's an expect that is meant to meet an expect an an expectation
0: an right. embodied I,
1: expectation.
0: Right, I needed to match what my what my guess is about what their experience was like.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or they feel that like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm supposed to say this, right? And kids, you know, we all actually so much want to please. How it's like the hardest thing to do to be that like that the person who is willing to say things that aren't that are going to might make you ostracized, that mm-hmm. are going to make people uncomfortable, that are in, like, impactful in certain ways. That, and I think that's actually part of, well, this is a, a controversial thing to say, but I think that's part of what it is, to build preferred futures. So I'll explain why I'm using that specific language. Um, there's, there's, Let me open this really quickly. Um, Within that, within the um, community of futures or the the study of futures, there's this particular diagram called the, I think it's the George Boros Futures Cone, but I just want to make sure I'm saying it exactly right. So I'm looking for it. Um, And yes, oh, sorry. Joseph Voros Comb. And I can show you. I know your listeners can't see it, but um, yeah, you can take a screenshot and I can send this to you. But the idea is it's just to help people visualize and break down this idea of futures. And so the reason that it's plural is because there are several different aspects of the of the potentials of the future and like the largest ring if you're looking out I've heard it described like if you're in a completely dark room of course the room is part of it but then you turn on a flashlight and there's this kind of cone of light right and there's the ring that is the largest that kind of dissipates out into the blackness and that's the possibilities those are the possible futures. it's like kind of encompassing everything And then as you go in towards the center, you have like more, and so you're starting, by the way, you with a flashlight, you're starting from the present moment, exactly where you are in the moment. And there's the the narrowest part of the cone and the light. And you can also assume and know behind you is all of history and every perspective, right? Of experience. And so there's, you know, again, facing forward, looking at the, the, into the darkness, turning on a light, and what you can see is like the realm of possibility. We, we actually can't see what we can't imagine is possible, but we can understand certain aspects of possibility. So there's the largest cone of the possible futures. And then when you narrow in a little bit and you're a little more focused, um, based on your standing where your perspective is, there's the plausible futures. This is kind of likely out of all the possibilities. And then even more narrowed in, there's the probable futures. And the probable futures can be looked at also as, this is what will happen if I don't, I don't make any changes. Let's say you could, I've never read this before, I don't know if somebody else has said this, but it could even be passive, right? If I stay passive or if I'm not actively moving in a way to create with intention, then there's the probability that this is what will come. But then kind of off to the side or wherever you might want to see it within the whole spectrum of possibility, you can identify and, and through speculation, through desire, through your hopes and dreams For in my case, like what is social wellness? How do we educate? How can we do outreach? How can we reach people who are not interested in being reached, you know? What's the future of corporation? Oh, well, that's my set. My answers to that are the preferred futures. So we all have this idea of what would we prefer to see in the future? This is like this idealized potential, you know, this. And so even something so simple as using that, so, Companies are using this and, and this, these ways of thinking as for strategizing, there's these ideas of foresight, you know, but how does a student use that? How does an educational institution use that? How does a church how does you know um, what if the goal isn't that it's for you know the bottom line? What if we don't use the word stakeholders, like which happens so much, you know or users or you know as we were as we were t- talking earlier what what if we didn't use the word consumer when we're talking about humans
0: yeah it's like so to me that it all of those the the biggest strategy that i've just in hearing you and learning from you in our conversation so far is one of the immediate strategies that's going to be helpful in in that kid not being like when we're talking about an individual is not, you know, being passive is this, a, is that idea that you talked about earlier, which is like generative identity, right? Like yes. allowing them to say, oh, I can be, I can be whoever I want to be. And, and that person that I want to be might not exist yet until I become that person yeah. as opposed to, I can be Mike as a postman, I can be Mike as an architect, I can be Mike as a doctor, I can be Mike as an entrepreneur. Like, we still, like, even when we tell kids that you can be anything you want to be, it's still inside of a preferred future. We still have a preferred future that Lauren becomes a stylist, if you were interested, Mm -hmm. in hair. right? Well, she wants to, you know, like, she that that makes sense like if you want to if she really likes hair her our preferred future for her is she'd be a stylist and then i guess our most preferred future you would own your own salon because right that fit into our idea of well then she would be empowered and she would have money and she would be part of this you know system and what you're saying is like um like nothing you're you're saying like yeah but what if what if there's this You know, what if you the the little girl, Lauren, could have thought that one day she would have been introduced as the founder of Aesthetic Autonomy, Mm -hmm. Art, Hair, Futures, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you didn't even know that could exist yet, and you're trying to convince people now to have kids be like, look, I can be whoever I want to be, and I don't know what that's going to look like yet. Okay, so future Mike needs to jump in here for a second. That was recorded in late July. It is now early October. I've been working on getting this podcast edited, and Lauren had reached out to me not too long afterwards and wanted to make a correction. And I think it's so cool how important she understands that language is and wanted to make this correction. And she says to me in an email, Mike, Thanks for the talk on Friday, it was super fun, appreciate the opportunity. One thing I wanted to mention and have been thinking about since the recording is, since talking about preferable futures, I should have corrected you and further explained the difference between preferred and probable futures. Having just introduced you to the chart and language, it was totally my bad. As I recall, you gave a few examples during which you were intending to make a differentiation Using an example, if someone is interested in hair, it would be someone else's preferred future that that person become a stylist. But the more accurate term would be to say, in using language as it is used in the scope of the chart, it is a probable future that someone interested in working with hair would become a stylist. The preferred future, in Lawrence's case, would be that she works with hair as a tool of education and outreach giving interactive workshops to support new ways of being and thinking through this esoteric design futures realms. The logic is it's not likely to happen unless I or the person creates that possibility for themselves or understand somehow that the possibility exists out of the full spectrum of possibilities. So thank you for that clarification. Lauren, and now back to our interview.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that the next step after saying that is giving them a structure to help imagine
0: the
1: possibilities. But also, what is the reason, you know? Because we have to acknowledge, if you're saying that to a child, what are their influences at that point? It's like, oh, I wanna be an astronaut, or I wanna be a doctor, I wanna be a lawyer. It's like, okay, or whatever, I mean, the way I'm speaking right now, it sounds like I have very limited imagination. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just trying to make the point that there is no real, our children are, are, are our babies, our children are indoctrinated by these societal norms from, a ve- from you know, six months old. Mm-hmm. So there's already this embodied, embedded expectation or this kind of feeling or need to meet an expectation of accomplishment of whatever and and so then there's the and then what happens is then there's a separation if you express like oh i actually want to be well an artist or a a choreographer and then people are like you know we all we all know that story and that's an old story we don't have to tell that story anymore where kids are told like you won't make no we don't even have to finish the sentence right but how do we give the structure? And I think as educators, that's a really important um, question is like, you can say that, you can be anything you wanna be. Well, now we have to help to to open up or facilitate or support the um, enormous wide spectrum of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? Well, we help them identify what are all the possibilities? What are the likely thing, you know, and then, and then narrowing into their personal, their preferred features. And I would say that it is our responsibility to understand the impact, of course, not just for the individual, but really, we have to look at and consider the, the the social impact and social wellness as well, right? Because with everything that we do as parents, as educators, as humans existing on the planet, it has to be pointed towards that new future, that preferred future, which erases all that structure and of domination that exists,
0: you know? That's awesome. Um, I love that idea of, of, of giving kids structure or how to become who you want to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. how to how do you become your preferred future? How do you yes. even think about your preferred future? And then once you have that preferred future, then giving them that scaffold or structure to do that. This has been amazing um, in, in, in thinking about this. I think that, you know, for those of uh, people who want to dive into more of this kind of thought, how can they... Find out more about what you are up to on either social media or the internet.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say the best social media platform would be on Instagram and my account is at Lauren C. Klein. And then on my website, which there's a link to from my Instagram, but also you can reach it at Lauren And I think the same Well, I know it could also, you can also reach it from www.aestheticautonomy.com.
0: Okay. And I'll put those in the show notes. Um, Before we go, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you are grateful for right now in your life. Yeah. Um, And I really feel like all of these ideas that you've been talking about, I would love for us to be able to do a part two, because this mm-hmm. has generated new ideas for me, questions that I have, um, but um, what are the things that you are grateful for, and we'll start with a thing, and then we'll go to a person and then a place, and then um, if you are friends or colleagues or family of Lauren's, um, don't be mad at her if she doesn't mention you, um, I caught her off guard. Um, and uh, asking her this, but let's start with a thing that you're grateful for.
1: Um, okay, well, I'm going to go into very literal with this one because it feels kind of hard. But I would say that um, that I live in the very center of, like gen- the center of Centro Historico in Mexico City, the center of Mexico City. And it is so chaotic. I live on a no- notoriously chaotic street in a, in a notoriously chaotic city. So what I feel really grateful for actually is the indoor garden that my partner and I have created because it is so grounding and it's a, it's a necessity as like a tool. It's like, ah, <laughs> I feel really grateful for that.
0: Awesome, I would love to see that garden. I bet it's really yeah. cool. Um, What is a, who's a person that you're grateful for? Person or persons?
1: Gosh, even though you, this is so quite difficult. (laughs) Well, I think it, I think that, you know, I'm really just thinking about my whole journey and how I ended up where I am. And, And so I think that the person who supports me the most in my, um, in my, in my research and kind of gives me the space to be and think and and do everything I need to do to be living in this world that I'm creating is my partner, yeah.
0: And um, how about a place that you are grateful for?
1: Yeah, so for this... I'm gonna go with that idea of the belief system is the space and place. I feel, I um, actually feel really grateful for how I inherently, I, how I feel in my heart and, and the continued development of my own belief system. And I say that knowing that I will continually evolve and, um, and I feel really, really grateful. That's, that's something that I think is really important. It is my also, it is my creative practice. It is my expression in every way.
0: That's such a lovely way to, for me to feel like we can um, uh, kind of transition from, you know, ending this conversation, but hopefully kind of picking up, and what, what I hope our listeners, um, where they'll pick that up, and transition it into how they're looking at their upcoming school year, but also just in general, their practice as artists and educators, is that idea of evolving, that idea of um, creating what their preferred art classroom looks like and what that preferred future can be and how that can by living, um, by, by them focusing on that, it can just start setting those examples. And I love that what I, what I hear you talk about for the last hour are these ways in which some of the small things that I can do, some of the small adjustments that I can make can have these gigantic impacts on my son and whatever he decides that a family might look like for him and how uh, powerful it can be for me to kind of take ownership of my own evolution, my own preferred future and um, addressing uh places in which i have erred and places that i can correct and i I just think that that's so really um i'm I'm just really grateful for the conversation you've had with us because i feel like that a lot of big ideas have been talked about but really towards the end there you talked about that structure and that Mm -hmm. that generative identity and grabbing hold of that and having people understand so i just really appreciate your conversation today i hope that Um, my fellow Tennessee art educators and artists who educate from all over will get a lot about this conversation and I hope that they'll reach out to you. I hope they'll dive into your practice. I hope they'll follow your Instagram and see that, you know, one of the things I loved about your feed is that you use that platform to immediately connect me to lots of other people. It's how I actually found Mary Clage in Cookville, Tennessee was through yours someone that you knew was in an exhibit I was able to connect and so I just really hope people kind of come your way and allow you to do this thing that I I feel um, feel and like kind of looking at your work and then certainly hear you talking is this idea to kind of embrace and that we are all part of each other's stories and we're all part of each other's histories and I think can be in a really powerful way part of each other's futures yeah thank you so much for being on the podcast today i really appreciate
1: it it is so fun thank you so much for inviting me and the time and yeah just to reiterate please if anybody has questions or any any anything i'm absolutely totally open to connecting and hearing
0: great well thank you all for listening to another episode of the art of outreach and again lauren klein founder of aesthetic autonomy Art, Hair, Futures, thank you for being our guest today.
1: Thank you.